you know, we talk about the pain from the Utah side or the LDS side or descendants of perpetrators side. Um, I, as we were working on book one, I met descendants of some victims who invited me out to Arkansas to meet all of them. And when I went to this big reunion of descendants of victims, I discovered there was still so much pain on their side, the descendants of the victim's side. And then once we came together, only when we came together were we able to heal that pain. So if, if we're not talking about the story, there's still all this pain, even if it's hidden pain. But when we can come together in a spirit of reconciliation, then the pain is healed. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall and excited to welcome back in uh, Rick Turley. Uh, we've had him on before when we were talking about murder among the Mormons. He joined us for a couple of episodes, I think. And then also in this episode, we welcome in Barbara Jones Brown. Thank the two of you for being here today. Thank you, Richie, for the invitation. Yeah, we're just excited to be with you today. Thank you. It's no sort of coincidence. They've written a book together. It's not that I just picked two people out of the ether and said, hey, would you like to join us for an episode? Uh, the book is Vengeance is Mine. But before we get into that, if people uh, don't know who you are, Barbara Jones Brown, put yourself in context for folks. Sure. So um, my name is Barbara Jones Brown. I'm the director of Signature Books Publishing. I've been there for a little over a year. Prior to that, I was the executive director of the Mormon History Association. And uh, prior to that, I was the historical director for Better Days 2020, which uh, was a nonprofit dedicated to increasing awareness of Utah women's involvement in the suffrage movement and Utah women's activism and so forth. And then before that, I worked uh, for the church history department, working with Rick on, I was a content editor of Massacre at Mountain Meadows, which was published in 2008, and then uh, became the co-author with Rick of Vengeance is Mine. So we've been working on that since 2009. Wow, that's a good long project, and I'm sure we'll get into lots of details about it. Uh, excited to not only have received my copy, but to start pouring through it. Uh, Rick, put yourself in context uh, for people who may not have heard the previous episode when you were here with us. I am a recently retired, longtime historian for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I spent 22 years as the managing director of the church history department, eight years as assistant church historian. And then four years in directing the public affairs and church communications departments. I've written more than 20 books on Latter-day Saint and Western history, including uh, five that deal with the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Two narrative volumes, Massacre Mountain Meadows and Vengeance is Mine that Barbara mentioned earlier. And then three documentary volumes. One, a set of documents that Juanita Brooks tried to get in writing her book, but never could, which we got and we're, we're privileged to use in writing ours. And then two thick volumes on the legal documents associated with the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So uh, pretty exciting, to say the least, to have not only just one of you here in the Cultural Hall, but to have both of you, and even further, to have both of you join us at, at the same time to be able to talk about this project. Uh, Rick, it, it would surprise me to know that there's someone that doesn't know about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, but but for the sake of maybe an individual who hasn't heard about it, maybe a, a, a new member of the church or a new listener to the Cultural Hall has no idea, what even is that? The Mountain Meadows Massacre has sometimes been called the worst event in Latter-day Saint and Utah history. To put it very bluntly, in 
September of 1857, some 50 to 60 Latter-day Saint militiamen in southern Utah attacked a wagon train of mostly young families en route, mostly from Arkansas to California, and butchered all but 17 small children. It is an unthinkable type of atrocity. It occurred during the Utah War, and it unraveled in much the same way that mass killings unravel throughout the world through time. Often there is a period in which there is societal upheaval because of war or something else. In this particular case, the federal army was marching to Utah. Utah's territorial militia was responding to prepare defenses against that military approach. The people in Cedar City and its environs heard rumors that a branch of the army had broken off and might emerge from the mountains east of Cedar City at any time. They became very um, upset when a company of immigrants came through. They labeled these immigrants as the enemy, uh, wrongfully so, but type of thing that often happens when people polarize and began to treat others who might have been their friends as their enemies. And then through a series of very, very poor decision-making over the course of uh, nearly a week, they first attacked the train. And then when people died, they sought to cover up their involvement by butchering all who were able to tell the tale. So it's a horrific story. The first volume that we put together on from a narrative fashion, Massacre at Mountain Meadows, tells the story up to the massacre. And then Barbara can explain why the second volume. Yeah, Barbara. If I mean, in the kind of biography of Rick, he's like, listen, volume after volume after volume from him about this particular subject. What does vengeance his mind have to offer that that which is already written hasn't shared? So as I mentioned before, Rick hired me to be the content editor of Massacre of Mountain Meadows. And as so I met with Rick and the other two co-authors, Ronald Walker and Glenn Leonard. And in these meetings, uh, we would discuss all of the materials that we had gathered and eventually made the very difficult decision, <clears throat> the authors, to, uh, there, were, there was just too much material to cover in one book. And so while we all very much wanted to finish the project, have it all in one volume, we recognized there was so much more information to cover that we really needed to divide it into two volumes. And so as the preface of Massacre at Mountain Meadows points out, the first book is essentially about the crime. And the second book, which we've just finished, Vengeance is Mine, is about the punishment. Hmm. And so the second book picks up essentially where the first book left off, which was um, right after the massacre. And the first book picks up uh, on September 11th, 1857 in Salt Lake City where Jacob Hamlin and Priscilla Levitt are about to be sealed by Brigham Young as their two brothers and Jacob's first wife, Rachel Hamlin, is at the Mountain Meadows uh, where they had a home. The Hamlins had a home at the Mountain Meadows. So we start there and then we go all the way through the cover-up of the crime, uh, the eventual prosecution of the crime, the execution of John D. Lee, the only man found uh, guilty of the crime, tried and convicted for the crime, and then the death of Brigham Young, uh, the the death of Brigham Young and the execution of Lee took place in 1877. Then we also follow the fate in an epilogue type chapter. We follow the fate of the all of the perpetrators, most of the perpetrators of the crime and how the, their lives end up. 
So you know, I have to ask you when you when you do that hard decision, like you were mentioning about like the book, the first book is going to be to this point, and guys, we gotta we gotta call it. This is where this book is going to end. You've automatically then committed yourself to another volume, and these books are laborious. It's years in the making. I mean, you obviously have done it now with Vengeance is Mine, which, by the way, I should mention to folks, uh, there will be a link to purchase that book in the show notes so people can go right to that. You don't have to remember anything. Just look at the show notes and you'll be able to click and purchase it. But but committing to that and then having it been, if I'm doing math right, over a decade from first volume to now second, how have you guys continued to to work together and make sure that you get that done? I'll let both of you guys can answer it. We'll start with Rick. Well, as I mentioned before, I, we began this project with two co-authors, Ronald W. Walker and Glenn M. Leonard, who were, they were a bit ahead of me in terms of age, about a, a half generation to a generation older. The Mountain Meadows Massacre is a subject that sucks the air out of the room and it sucks the life out of whoever decides to tackle it. And it soon became apparent that Ron and Glenn were wearing down and that we had far more materials. So we just collectively decided we're only gonna go as far as the massacre on the first volume. We were really working on the whole thing from the start. So mm -hmm. I was working on chapters related to the, to the second volume from the very beginning, which was around 2000, 2001. So I've personally been working on this second volume for 23 or so years. And Barbara has been working on it for 15. So you put it together and Barbara and I have been collectively donated about 40, you know, four decades or so to this. Wow. And and so then for you, Barbara, how has it been that you've just been able to commit? Is it just is it just a feeling of undoneness that the completion has to be happening? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from from the moment Rick hired me to come on as a content editor of volume one in 2006, uh, we wanted to see this project through. Very much so. And um, so during those 14 years after we published Massacre at Mount Meadows, uh, we've also been working on other things. Rick talked about the three documentary histories he's worked on in between. I um, decided I didn't want to just edit historians. I wanted to be a historian. And mm -hmm. so I went back to graduate school, earned a master's degree in American history from the University of Utah. I did that during these 14 years, also raised five children. Um, so we've, we've both been very busy with various other projects as we were working on this, but from, we, there was always just definitely this driving determination to tell the rest of the story. So it was never a, a question of if we will finish it. It was just a matter of when. A question for both of you, uh, real quick, and then we'll take a break. Do you do you feel like uh, within the context of uh, of the of the church and in your life that this is a, a calling, something that you've been given divine talents to have to to step in and do these things? Start with Barbara. You're nodding your head. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we we share this story a lot, but uh, when Rick uh, called me to interview for the position to edit the book. I had just found out we were expecting our second baby. And um, so I was not looking for a full-time job at that time. Mm -hmm. But when he called me and asked me to come in for an interview, I thought, well, it doesn't hurt to go in for an interview. I can always still just say no. Um, but I went in for that interview and I just felt this incredible feeling like it makes no sense at this point in my life to be taking this position. But I felt this overwhelming feeling that I was supposed to do this and 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 took it on. What about for you, Rick? We've both had this strong feeling that we needed to get to the bottom of all of this. Here we are more than 150 years after the massacre. 
taking on a subject that's often been taboo in many quarters, particularly in Utah. And we wanted to open it wide, shine a bright light into it, feeling that the only way to get healing and reconciliation and to purge this evil, if you will, is by complete and true and open honesty. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about what Vengeance of Mine brings to the table that maybe we didn't know before. Uh, the conversation that it crafts will come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. BestDJinUtah.com. It's been a while since we've had a new one of these, and I apologize for that. It's because I've been so busy DJing events all over the country. Uh, but especially here in Utah, been able to do some great, uh, you know, weddings. I've done a, a prom or two for different listeners of the Cultural Hall. I love it when you uh, reach out to me at bestdjinutah.com, or uh, you can find the phone number online as well. I would love it if you say, hey, I heard about you on the Cultural Hall, because maybe, just maybe, I give a Cultural Hall discount. Uh, all sorts of events. It doesn't have to be a, a wedding. It could be a community event. Maybe it's a ward or youth activity. I'm doing one of those this summer. In fact, just lock the deal down on that. Uh, whatever it may be, if you need music to accompany your event or you just need a great MC, I would love to be able to help you out. You're simply going to need to go to bestdjinutah.com. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can uh, become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall. You go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall, where for as little as $5 a month, you get the opportunity to get the episodes before they even get published. You get to see the fine amount of books that Rick has right before him or right uh, behind him as he speaks. And uh, what I'm guessing is maybe a den or a study of Barbara Jones Brown. I'm not sure where she's at in her house, but you can't see the video if you are not a Patreon saint. Go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So a couple things I think people uh, perk up people's ears when they talk about the um, the uh, Mountain Meadows massacre. A and one of the things is uh, the cover-up. I want to hold off on that. I certainly want that to be a part of the conversation, but I feel like beyond uh, Brigham Young and beyond Lee, that there are some characters that we sort of need to know. These are obviously real people. This is not a fictional story that we're talking about, um, but tell me about who some of the players in this, that we need to know their names and who they are and what they had to do with it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Though Lee was the only man ever um, convicted and executed for the crime, there were many other people that were responsible for this. Primarily are Isaac Haight and William Dane. Isaac Haight was the Cedar City State President, Mayor, and Militia Major. And William Dane was the commander of the Iron Militia uh, who lived in Parowan. He was the state president in Parowan as well. So it was ultimately those two who bore the 
the most responsibility for it because they were the highest in the command and gave the orders for the massacre to take place. Uh, but we also know that there were 50, between 50 and 60 militiamen who were involved in the crime. And so unfortunately only one man was ever brought to justice for it. You know, I, oh, go ahead, Rick. In the appendix to Massacre Mountain Meadows, we list all of the participants in the massacre that we were able to discover. And we did that because we wanted people to know this really was group or community violence. Sure. At the very beginning, the massacre was intended to be a cover-up. Initially, the effort was to try to place full responsibility upon local Paiute Indians. Then after John D. Lee was executed, it was very easy for the other participants to simply point at him and say that he was the one principally responsible. But we wanted to let people know in the interest of full and complete disclosure of this horrible crime, that this is really community violence, group violence. When I hear the name Hate, I immediately think of David B. Hate. Is there a relation? Uh, David B. Hate is the great nephew of Isaac B. Hate. So his grandfather's brother was Isaac Hate. Okay. And then is there a lineage of Dane uh, within the church, anyone that we would know? Do you guys know this? This is genealogy test right now. Well, I I found out I was a descendant of a perpetrator myself, um, a man named William S. Holly. Uh, after we began work on Vengeance's Mind, so after the first book was published. Uh, so that was a real shocking experience to discover that. And I maybe never would have known that if I hadn't been familiar with the massacre story through my research. So when I was looking at some family history, there was a name that sounded familiar and I looked in the appendix of Massacre at Mount Meadows and discovered that. So, and and since Vengeance is Mine has been published, I've been having all kinds of people approach me on social media and telling me they're descendants of perpetrators as well. And so I think that uh, with between 50 and 60 men participating and they, a, a lot of them were polygamists, there are a lot of descendants and probably a lot of people like me who don't even realize that they are descendant of a perpetrator. And a direct response to your question, Richie, about William Dame. Uh -huh. William Dame was a polygamist, but interestingly, he had no children. So there are no descendants of William Dame. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you for keeping me on that. So, Barbara, I need to ask you then, uh, as you're researching, you're putting this together and you find this personal connection to one of the perpetrators. What was that like emotionally? Emotionally, it was it was surreal, and it was especially surreal for me because I had already finished this first book, um, and Rick and I were involved together with with other leaders um, in seeking reconciliation with descendants of the victims. We had worked together to working with the descendants groups to achieve national historic landmark status for the site, and so I was involved in all these reconciliation efforts having no idea was a descendant of a perpetrator. And so after that was all finished, and then we were working on volume two to discover I was a descendant of a perpetrator was, was just surreal. Um, it was, yeah. I will tell you, this. I watched, I watched her shed tears. It was very emotional for her to figure it out. Yeah. I, I wonder, and I would think may, maybe I'm making up a term, but I think for some, it could very well be because this is such a horrible atrocity, like perpetrator guilt. I'm not sure if that's a thing, but sure. knowing yeah. what what those that have that you're connected to have gone before did. I mean, that's a big deal. I think, yeah, I think um, many Latter-day Saints who are aware of the story just feel that collective guilt. And that's what I was feeling before was just the collective guilt that members of my church 
had done something so horrendous. So I think so many people feel that whether they're a direct descendant of a perpetrator or, or not. Um, and so what, what I've learned and the message that Rick and I are really trying to share with volume two as well, is that um, there is a way to overcome that guilt, that collective guilt. And that is through facing the fact, facing the truth. It is painful to face the story, but facing it, owning it, acknowledging that it happened, feeling sorrow for what happened, saying we're sorry that it happened. Of course, none of us today are responsible for it, but just mm -hmm. expressing sorrow, particularly descendants of victims, um, and then seeking recon reconciliation and healing. That has actually brought us so much peace and incredible joy and some very dear friendships with um, our friends in Arkansas and other places who are descendants of the victims. So we hope that all of us can move past by by seeking this reconciliation through facing the truth. Now, Rick, historically, oh, go ahead. Historically, the massacre has been initially ignored, then denied, then condoned, then pointed to as something that was the work of some other group of people, then pointed to as the work of a single fanatic. And we're, we're gradually working our way societally to the truth. So anyone with a connection to the massacre, either by interest or by dissent or in any other way, we want to preach this idea that the only way to get past this horrific event is to face it full on in the full light of day and to acknowledge what really happened and not try to excuse it in any way. I think that this sort of segues into um, maybe we, we we dive into the topic of the cover-up a little bit because reconciliation, both as the individual, but also collectively as the church, two very different journeys with similar kind of landmarks along the way, we can find this sort of uh, reconciliation as individuals, but has the church found its way through reconciliation as far as this goes? And I think that's a larger discussion. Some would say yes. Some would say they're trying. Some would say not at all. Some would write about it in the number one Mormon book for the last 30 years and say it makes us a violent culture, et cetera, et cetera. Crack hour. Uh, talk to me about how, how, how do you two feel that the, the church could make reconciliation as far as this goes, or have they? So I, I, in the process of writing this book, most of the years in which I was writing it, I was an employee of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it was my goal, a goal that was shared by church leaders, to tell this story in its completeness. Mm -hmm. Along with that, there was a great desire to interact with the descendants of the victims and the perpetrators to bring peace and reconciliation the first book, Massacre at Mountain Meadows, led to a meeting at the Mountain Meadows with relatives of the victims and the perpetrators in which then Elder Henry B. Eyring, now President Henry B. Eyring, read a statement from the First Presidency expressing the church's profound regret for what happened at the Mountain Meadows and that its members should be involved and another expression of regret towards the Paiute people who had been unduly saddled with the responsibility for the entire massacre in the past. I will tell you also from the inside that church leaders have spent a great deal of time and money in order to acquire property down at the Mountain Meadows to keep that area pristine and to make it into a National Historic Landmark. The easiest thing in the world for the church to do would have been nothing, allowing the two and a half acres that it owned to be enclosed as a tiny park in the midst of uh, development, vacation home developments down there, and essentially to let it be forgotten. But instead, the church has chosen to remember it in order to honor the victims and do what needs to be done, which is to tell the story in its entire truthfulness. 
I, and I would add that, Richie, we, we've talked about just the, the incredible amount of research and, and sources that we had to work with in writing these books. And the church funded um, people in the church history department to do all that research, to scour the country for all the information that they could. We have uh, <clears throat> sources from 31 down to 31 different states across the United States. And so, again, just doing everything um the church has had uh, incredible support for what we've been doing and gathering the information that was used to write these two books as well. Now, that being said, neither Barbara nor I had our writing uh, reviewed for approval by Latter-day Saint church leaders at the time we published this book recently. Neither one of us were employees of the church. So we're writing this as independent historians based on the best available information, but credit the church for all of that time and support and energy that they put into it. I felt nothing but a sincere desire on the part of Latter-day Saint leaders to face this horrible atrocity. We talk about it being a national historic landmark, but as far as the church goes, I know from a recent conversation with Gary Boatwright, who uh, runs the church historic sites, it is not a church historic site. We haven't taken that step to have missionaries or be able to tell the story or sort of embrace that part as far as the church as a whole goes. Is that correct? Yeah, and I don't to, just just as an individual, I would say I don't think it's appropriate to have church missionaries at this site or anything. This is, I mean, this is a this is a national site. It's an American site, and it's really a site for the descendants of the victims primarily. This is their site. This is where the remains of their ancestors still lie, um, and so it does. It I I don't think it would be appropriate to think of it as a, a church history site. It's it's their site. But it is getting an enormous amount of attention as a National Historic Landmark. Yeah. Both Barbara and I have gone there many times over the years, and I never go there except once in the middle of the winter when there was snow. I've never been there except that I've seen people who have been attracted to it and have visited the monuments and who have shed tears and wept and read the signage and shaken their heads at this horrible, horrible event. So as we, as we talk about Vengeance is Mine, the title of the book, that clearly comes from scripture? Am I right in, in recognizing that? Which one of you would like to tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, it comes from scripture and history, um, Mountain Meadows history. So in 1859, a contingency of, of army men come up from Southern California, and they buried the remains of the victims who are still, many of which are still scattered across the Mountain Meadows. They gather up as many of the remains as they can, they create a few mass graves eventually, and uh, at, at one mass grave, the main one at the site of the massacre today, they build a, a, a memorial, a huge cone-shaped cone structure of rocks, and out of the middle of the cone, they erected a cross, across which they wrote, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, saith the Lord. And that is a scripture from Romans in the New Testament. And so we have um, our chap a couple of chapters uh, talk about that building of that monument. And uh, that's where we get the idea for the title of the book. The theme of vengeance and revenge from both sides of this um, runs throughout the entire book. So we thought that was uh, appropriate as well. And then uh, the epigraph of our book says, vengeance is mine and I will repay, saith the Lord. And then it says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And we chose that as the epigraph because we hope that this book will help to overcome the evil of the massacre with good by telling the truth about the story. 
It's also a, a scripture that's directed to tell people it is not the responsibility of humans living on earth to wreak revenge, to seek vengeance. That is left only to God and that anyone who, because of anger or other reasons, wants to seek vengeance on another person should instead try to be good, be kind, love enemies, as Jesus said. This this is a culmination of, I won't say your entire life's work, but a considerable amount of each of your life's work uh, as we as you publish this book now, Vengeance is Mine. I, I would be curious as you, let's, let's dial it back in maybe the last five years as you've been researching, getting this ready for print and, those, and studying all the different documents made available by the church and otherwise, uh, are there things that even within the last five years that you have learned that were not known before from the research? And if so, what are they? Starting with you, Barbara. Gosh, there are countless things that we have learned while working on volume one and then countless more things that we've learned working on volume two. And that's the nature of history and sure. doing good research is you're all, you should always be being surprised by new things that you're learning and finding. Um, one, we we found out more about um, a, a strategy that Brigham Young had to try and convince the federal government to pull back the troops that it had sent. He was encouraging raids of cattle. He was not encouraging killing of anyone, but he was encouraging cattle raiding um, and encouraging Native Americans to participate with uh, Mormons to raid cattle as a strategy to say, hey, look, if you're going to replace the Mormons or if you're going to drive the Mormons out of Utah with the army, then who's going to control the Indians? So he was playing on that stereotype, that 19th mm -hmm. century stereotype. And we discovered there were several attacks on emigrant trains between sept September 7th and October 3rd, 1857. So that's a new motive that also comes into play along with those that Rick had mentioned. Um, other things, we found a few sources, very early sources immediately after the massacre that mention 95 and 96 victims of the crime mm -hmm. rather than the number of 120, which is an estimate made later in 1859 um, by Jacob Hamlin and the army that I mentioned earlier. And the reason why that matters is, is not to downplay or make the massacre seem any less heinous than it was, but to say we probably are pretty close to have the to having the right number of names. Um, we've historians and descendants groups have put together about 88 names that have been identified so far. So we're closer to being accurate on that than we thought. So we can relieve that um that worry about trying to find out who's missing, who are the names that we still need to find. Um Rick I'll, I'll let Rick jump in with a couple of more discoveries as well. Before you do, Rick, let me let me uh, posit this question. You talk about that there were attacks on other train, uh, you know, these groups that came through. Were there any that were uh, that ended in bloodshed of people, or was was it all mainly attacking so, and getting livestock, those kind of things? Yeah. So great, great question. So we do know that uh, one of the attacks in the north, very northernmost part of Utah territory, led to uh, one of the immigrant men being killed. We do know that some other attacks that were taking place in central Utah near Fillmore and Beaver led to three um, of the that mass of that emigrant trains leaders being shot. They all survived, but they were shot um, during the process. But for the most part, the attacks uh, did not lead to bloodshed. And Brigham Young repeatedly said he didn't want any shedding of blood during this Utah war period. So it was clearly not his intention. 
I think a lot of Latter-day Saints have been familiar with the attacks that Lot Smith and members of the Navajo Legion made on civilian trains that were supplying the army up in, uh, in Wyoming and other locations. This, what we've discovered is this broader strategy, all part of the same effort. Uh, in terms of additional new information, Vengeance is Mine is really the first book to understand and explain what happened with John D. Lee and his two trials. There's been a lot of mythology that's been passed on and repeated over the years by various authors about what supposedly happened. Vengeance is Mine is the first one to truly understand and get that information out. That's partly as a result of transcriptions done of original shorthand by our colleague, Lejeune Purcell Carruth, that made it possible for us to understand the procedure associated with these two trials. It's sometimes said that Brigham Young fingered John D. Lee as a scapegoat and helped to have uh, him identified as the sole person who would be tried in order to pull the pressure off the church. Mm -hmm. If you read Vengeance in His Mind, you'll find that's simply not true. We explain how John D. Lee ended up being tried, and we explain what role Brigham Young had. He did have a role, but it wasn't in scapegoating John D. Lee. It was simply doing what he had promised to do since 1859, which is to provide witnesses in the event that suspects related to the massacre were tried. There was no agreement to leave it at that. There were efforts made later on to prosecute other people. What essentially happens is that after Brigham Young's death in 1877, the political reasons for prosecuting the massacre shift from Brigham Young to John Taylor and other church leaders. So they the prosecutors move their efforts away from violence, the Mountain Meadows Massacre, to sex, namely polygamy. And they begin to prosecute polygamy really hard, leading to the raids of the 1880s and eventually the Wilford Woodruff Manifesto. Yeah, Richie, one more, and yes, just please. building on what Rick said, one another surprise for me was to discover, you know, there's this assumption, and it was an assumption I bought into that after um, Lee was executed, it was like, okay, that was it, no more, we're done prosecuting this, but to discover that uh, the prosecutor that won his conviction named Sumner Howard, he continued to go after and try and uh, prosecute other perpetrators after Lee's execution. He was continuing to work on that until eventually, for various reasons, uh, national interest waned uh, and, and started focusing on polygamy, as, as Rick said. So so uh, when we talk about this story and people will say, oh, it was some sort of cover-up, that really isn't a question. There were people that, you know, within the church that were saying, no, it was this, it was this other thing. It, it's not a question of, you know, were they trying to cover it up? They were. Absolutely. Yeah, and if you look at our book in the in the table of contents, we divided the table of contents into seven sections, and uh, the second section, the first section is called crime. It's about the crime itself and the, its immediate aftermath. The second section is called cover up, and we have several chapters in there about the cover up and how it starts and how it continues and grows. The the big question that I hear uh, discussed all the time, I just want to take a minute or two and and get you guys both to weigh in on this: is did Brigham Young no, and did he order it? That's the thing when I hear about Mountain Meadows Massacre, beyond the atrocity, the heinousness and everything of that, the next question seems to be with everyone is, is this something that Brigham Young said, let's do this, and then denied after the fact, and, and or could he have known based on timing and uh, you know timeline as far as that goes? What do each of you think? Well, he certainly did not order it. I think if you read Massacre at Mountain Meadows, and Vengeance is Mine, or if you're just going to read one, read the latter, Vengeance is Mine, you'll be convinced that Brigham Young did not order the massacre. Now, in terms of cover-up, one, one of the things that Vengeance is Mine does is it answers the question that many people have had over time, and that is, 
What did Brigham Young know and when did he know it? We meticulously go through that and show that his understanding of it morphs over time. The major cover-up is actually launched by the people who carried out the massacre. After they carried out the massacre, they had written to Brigham Young saying they're having some troubles with immigrants in Southern Utah. Brigham Young got their letter on Thursday, wrote a response back saying, let them go in peace. Instead, they massacred the company on Friday and then got his letter on Sunday. Once they got the letter from him on Sunday, they discussed among themselves, how are we going to hide this? Because we've gone directly contrary to what he instructed us to do. So they, they stew on it for a while. Eventually, they decide to send John D. Lee to general conference with a report of what happened, blaming the atrocity entirely on local Indians. And that's the report that's given to Brigham Young on September 29th. John D. Lee even rides into town as though he is an express messenger who's bringing a report of a recent massacre because they knew that if they had reported the actual dating of it, September 11th, and he doesn't show up with a message for 18 days, Brigham Young's going to wonder, why didn't you tell me about this earlier? So they cover it up from the beginning. Over time, Brigham Young begins to find out about it. In 1859, he knows enough about it that he calls for a federal investigation and trial of the perpetrators and volunteers from 1859 on to help bring together the suspects and also witnesses to testify against them. Do you concur, Barbara? Do you think Do you think that... Uh that he could have said, hey, let's do it? So I'm really glad you brought up this question. I first heard about the massacre when I was 22 years old, a long time ago. And back then, very little was known about it. And um, so the first time I heard about it, I wanted to know, did did Brigham Young order this? That was definitely a question that I had, mm-hmm. like, like everyone else when they yeah. first heard about it. And so that's one of the reasons when Rick called me in for the interview and I had the opportunity to work on this book, I was like, absolutely, I want to work on this book and I want to know for myself, I want to see the sources myself and learn from myself. Um, but like Rick said, I mean, the the evidence is just overwhelming that he did not order it. Um, he certainly has some uh, responsibility in that he uh, was using violent rhetoric as part of the Mormon Reformation. A lot of church le- leaders were that kind of created a culture of of um, fear. Um, There was also very much a culture of us and them, us versus them with the Mormons versus the federal government that was sending the troops, you know, created this, this, this atmosphere of hostility. Um, But did he order it intend bloodshed to happen? Absolutely not. I'm 100% convinced of that. One of the the things that was most convincing to me is in um, chapter four of our book is you have William Dame and Isaac Haight, who are the armchair leaders, the armchair orders of the massacre. They go down to the site the next morning, early in in the morning, and they see what's happened based on their orders, and they are horrified what's happened and they're arguing over who's going to have to report this to Brigham Young and they're arguing over whether to tell the truth to Brigham Young or whether to blame it all on the Indians. Now if Brigham Young had ordered it, they would have said, okay, who's going to take the credit for this? Yeah. Right. And they wouldn't have been having those kinds of arguments. And I mean there is just incidents after incidents after incidents of this. And then again that letter that Rick mentioned that we have, we know it was written on September 10th saying let them go. Um, so no, he, he did not order it. This may not have anything to do with the book, which I'm sure you're like, great. Thanks for asking this question in this time. But I'm curious, uh, if anything that you guys are aware of has ever been studied as far as like the numerology, because when you think of the horrible atrocity on September 11th, 2001, it's the same day. Is there any sort of 
uh, research, anything that you guys have seen that, you know, similar to like uh, the 20th of April, 420 has been another day when several just horrible uh, national and international atrocities have occurred. Is there any sort of things that you guys have seen just kind of as an aside? Obviously, go, go ahead, Barbara. I have a hard time with that. I mean, the only coincidence, I mean, it was a horrific event. Yeah. Both, you know, 9-11 in modern times and 9-11 in 1857 and innocent people were murdered. Absolutely. But other than that, there's not really any coincidence. And what I always tell people is my daughter was born on 420. Mm -hmm. My beautiful, wonderful, innocent, lovely daughter. Um, does that tie her to Hitler or Columbine massacre or no? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's the same in that it was a horrific event of where a lot of people were killed, but it was not an act of terrorism. And the so, massacre, yeah. The massacre also occurs over several days. So the initial attack on the company is early on the morning of September 5th that most people are killed on, on Friday the 11th, but there are some stragglers who continue on and are killed uh, after that. So it's a, it's a massacre that occurs over several days, one of which happens to be September 11th. Yeah, yeah the, main, the main slaughter, yeah. I appreciate you guys uh, addressing that sort of random question, but I have constantly- Well, we get it I, a lot. It comes yeah, up I'm a sure. lot. I'm sure. Uh, let's yeah, take I a break. When we come back in the third block, I want to talk about uh, why members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today, 21st century, would want to read your book, know about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, what we can learn from it, and why this is so very necessary for us to uh, embrace and then come to terms with. Let's do that when we come back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Hey, you guys, wanted to talk to you about a new voice app on the Amazon Alexa. It's made by the church, that is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it's geared for kids and grandkids aged 4 to 11. It's called the Friend Magazine Skill, and it allows your kids to play the Friend Magazine from an Amazon Alexa smart speaker. Now, here's what's cool about it. Each month, it's going to include new stories and new music from the Friend Magazine. It's, uh, you know, a thing that your kids, they know what it is. In fact, if you said, hey, kids, enable the Friend Magazine skill, they've already done it before you even ask them. And the best part is it's free. It's built by the church. So there is no advertisements or any content that you need to worry about. And it's a fun, great way to help your kids learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called the Friend Magazine Skill be sure to enable it on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop and they start at only $29 a month and it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always send us an email. It's contact at theculturalhall.com. Great part about email is, is it never closes. You get an itch in the middle of the night to say, oh my gosh, I loved that episode with Rick and Barbara. You can send that email. Middle of the night doesn't, doesn't wake me up and I love to read it when I get up in the morning. You have a guest suggestion. Maybe you're reading a book and you think we should get the authors in. Something that we haven't talked about before here in the Cultural Hall. Always welcome that. It's contact at theculturalhall.com. So we've talked a little bit about the cover-up. We've talked about some of the things of reconciliation. What, what does it benefit? Some, some would say, and I would call these people wrong, but they would say the past is in the past. Let's focus on the future or the present. What do we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gain from studying the Mountain Meadows Massacre? Well, there are lots. Go ahead. 
Go ahead, Barbara. I think that stance of, I think for generations, the church tried to say, or church members tried to say, well, the past is in the past. Let's not talk about that. But guess what? This story is still, it keeps surfacing and resurfacing. And I think it's because there hasn't been a willingness to just openly talk about it and encounter it and own it. And then only then can we really truly move past it. So so that has never worked. And Rick realized that when he had the idea, the brilliant idea that it's time to write a book about this subject. Um, but as a historian, I know that we can all learn from our pasts, whether it's in church history or American history, so on and so forth. And the only way to truly learn it, learn from it and move on and create a better future is to encounter our past, even when it may be painful. Our first volume on the subject, Massacre of Mountain Meadows, became the basis for a section on the Mountain Meadows Massacre that was included in the church's new forward volume, History Saints. And so you, you get a condensed version of that in Saints. But of course, this new volume, Vengeance is Mine, wasn't ready then. So you're only getting half the story as Latter-day Saints when you read the account that's there. You get the other half, you have to read Vengeance is Mine. So what are the kinds of lessons that we can learn? Vengeance is Mine shows how people become polarized in times of economic and political tension. In those periods of polarity, they began to look at, begin to look at people different from themselves as the other, and then the other over time becomes the enemy. Mm. And when that happens, people begin to shift in their minds from one set of ethics or laws to another. Our church, as well as most other Christian churches and most churches and organizations throughout the world, adhere strongly to that provision in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. And yet, and yet most churches throughout the world not all, but most churches throughout the world and most cultures permit people to reverse that during times of danger, times of war. So you shift from peacetime ethics to wartime ethics. What we can learn from this book, Vengeance is Mine, is not to polarize, not to look at our neighbors as somehow so different from ourselves that we need to treat them as the other and to vilify them and to consider them as somehow less than deserving to live. So it's a it's really a tale for our time, a time in which societally, particularly in this country, but elsewhere, we're polarized, sometimes as a result of listening to only one set of news instructions through our social media that's been set up to feed to us only what we want to hear. We should recognize that it's important to listen to others, even those with whom we seem to disagree. And at the very least, even if we agree to disagree with them, we should still agree to love them. And I, I wanted to add that one thing that, you know, we talk about the pain from the Utah side or the LDS side or descendants of perpetrators side. Um, I, as we were working on book one, I met descendants of some victims who invited me out to Arkansas to meet all of them. And when I went to this big reunion of descendants of victims, I discovered there was still so much pain on their side, the descendants of the victim's side. And then once we came together, only when we came together were we able to heal that pain. So if, if we're not talking about the story, there's still all this pain, even if it's hidden pain. But when we can come together in a spirit of reconciliation, then the pain is healed. I'm going to ask you a question that's going to make both of you uncomfortable, but I'm going to preface it with this. Neither Rick nor Barbara speak on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and their opinions are their own. 
They uh, don't, uh, you know, try to instruct how the church should do things, but this is just a question for their opinion. Has the church done, the church as a collective body, the church as an organization, has the church done enough on its behalf to reconcile the Mountain Meadows massacre? And if not, what more could or should they do? My answer would be that the church has been doing a great deal and is continuing to do that. So those who remain with the church history department are in contact with the relatives of the victims and the relatives of the perpetrator. They continue perpetrators. They continue to add property to, and add signage to the the site at, at the Mountain Meadows. So there's a great deal that has been done and continues to be done on the part of the church officially. Yeah, I I think it's it's made remarkable efforts to do what's right. And again, it's become as a result of studying and learning the history and, and coming to a full understanding of what happened. Um, and I would also add that uh, the church is doing a great job in making um, this available in church curriculum. So when we first started working on the book, or when I did, at least in 2006, a lot of people had never heard of the Mount Meadows Massacre. Now, most Latter-day Saints that I talked to have heard of it. And they may not know a lot about it, but they at least have heard about it. And now it's mentioned in the seminary programs and institute, and there's a, a gospel topics essay available about it. And so I feel that, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else. If, of course, if descendants of victims come up with new ideas of things that we can do and partner and collaborate with them, we we have been. And, and I, I believe that everything that um, they've been hoping for um, the church and, and, and we as authors have, have tried to do. So I think it's made tremendous strides and I'm really proud. I'm very proud of how the church has handled it. And I will say that I've had relatives of perpetrators come to me and say, why can't we just put this behind us? Why can't we just forget about it? Mm -hmm. Why did we have to buy all this property? Why do we have to have a National Historic Landmark? Why do we have to have commemorative events out there every year? And my response is to say, have you been to Carthage, Illinois? You know, what mm -hmm. happened in Carthage, Illinois is not the best thing that's ever happened in that community. And yet the, the people who live in that area allow us to build a memorial to the Prophet Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram and to regularly commemorate this horrible event that happened there. And so we need to remember that to the relatives of the victims, it's very important that we not forget those who wrongly died there and whose remains still are there. So when people go and visit the Mountain Meadows, we hope they'll do so with a sense of awe and reverence, remembering what happened there and vowing that they will never personally do anything that would lead to hatred of others or violence. And at the same time, remembering that the people who were there were innocent. Their lives were taken from them wrongfully. They were young families en route to dreams, and those dreams were extinguished and replaced with nightmares. Yeah, I think it's just so important um, to remember, like Rick said, that word came up again and again. It's important to remember even these, these difficult parts in our past, whether it's in our church or our nation's history, it's important to remember so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past and we can learn from them and it can make us better people, more compassionate, more em empathetic, um, more willing to uh, consider views of others and see others as, as our brothers and sisters instead of as enemies. 
I appreciate you guys embracing the question that I ask because I know it's a little delicate based on professional and and other relationships as far as the church as a group and and all that kind of stuff. I appreciate you doing that. I'm going to throw out a suggestion. So for you guys and for other people that are listening, we have fifth Sundays. I would love the two of you and and some of the descendants of of uh, the perpetrators and of those that um, were victims and to be able to have a, a large lesson on this and to take some of what we've discussed here and to take some of those other things and make that available, nay, mandatory for everyone to have the opportunity to listen to. Those are my words. Those are not the words of Rick or Barbara. That's my suggestion to anyone who may be listening to that. I think that that could be something that would be beneficial for all as we do this. There's one uh, other thing that I wanted to ask you guys kind of in, uh, you know, in, in ending and closing this thing, there's a, there's an interesting connection with Juanita Brooks that I, I would love to bring up. Who would like to tell me about that? All right, Barbara, let's do it. Yeah, we can both Rick and I, we always tag team. All right. What we want to talk about. So um, we dedicate our book, Vengeance is Mine to Juanita Brooks. And the reason why is she was the first scholar to uh, the first person to investigate her own community. She was from Southern Utah, uh, her investigate her community's um, unspoken dark secret. And she did that bravely and courageously. I relate to her so much because she did it as a, a stepmother and a mother uh, doing it as she's raising this large family, just like I did. I'm a stepmother and a mother and uh, wrote this first scholarly book on the subject, publishing it in 1950. And so she's she's our hero. And in fact, our book ends with Juanita Brooks as well, when a perpetrator of the massacre named Nephi Johnson, who was her stake patriarch and gave her her patriarchal blessing, is on his deathbed and he's wanting to tell her what happened, but he's so delirious that she's not able to uh, write down what he what it was he'd wanted to tell her when he called her out. And uh, she discovers he was a perpetrator. She's shocked to learn that. And it leads to her eventually studying the massacre and publishing about it. So our book opens with her and closes with her. And we feel like it's appropriate because she's the one who opened the scholarly study of this, this tragedy. Rick. <laughs> Anything to add, Rick? Uh, simply that we stand on her shoulders both Barbara and I participated in a Juanita Brooks seminar that was held at Utah Tech University a few weeks ago. There we point out what she got right. She didn't get everything right because she didn't have access to the sources that we have. So she got some things wrong, which we pointed out in part in there, but are more particularly pointed out in the narrative of Vengeance is Mine, which we encourage people to read. We believe if Juanita were here, she'd say three cheers for your book. Yeah. And if she were here, I would invite her to be a part of that fifth Sunday lesson as well. The one I'm pushing for, I'll make, I'll, I'm going to write a couple letters. We'll, we'll get that happening. Uh, the book is called Vengeance is Mine. I've been talking with Rick Turley and uh, Barbara Jones Brown, the authors of that. You guys, there are three questions we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I will ask those of you and then let you about your day. Uh, we'll go ladies first for each of these questions. Uh, the first question is, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Yes, I am the, uh, the leader of, I'm the historical leader of our stakes trek. 
So our stake is going on Trek soon. And so I'm there to make sure we get everything historically accurate. And so, so I is love that it. like pictures and journals and stuff or, or, or you mean um, like, just it's making sure that, 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 that legend, like legends around Trek aren't repeated and that we work with ac actual um, accounts and journals and so forth in telling the story of what happened. As, yeah. so, as sort of an aside, I'm curious, do you think that the pioneers would say, guys, we did this. Why are you continuing to do this every four years? <laughs> well, I think it, no, I think it goes back to remembrance, <laughs> remembering the sacrifices that people made for their faith. And again, so when I was saying, you know, we remember good things and bad things, so mm -hmm. hard things, difficult things. Um, it's important to remember, you know, our ancestors who went before and, and the sacrifices they made for their beliefs. Yeah. That's a good all right, Rick, I know recently retired, which means you're busier than you've ever been. What's your calling right now? Well, my, my calling in my local ward is as an adult Sunday school teacher, teaching the Come Follow Me lessons, gospel doctrine, if you will. Yeah, I'll need to get that address. I'd love to go to one of those classes. That would be a fun thing to sit in on. Uh, Barbara, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Wow, I have never thought about that. I mean, I mean, there are people that are doing for their professions what I'd love to see done. And that's like telling more women's history okay, uh, in the church. And there are people who are hired who work for the church history department who are doing that. So yeah, I don't. So women's history of the church more specialist? Of it, more, of it, more of it taught and shared in um, church history. Okay. And, so teacher know, of women's lessons. church history, that's the calling. Or like, here's what I, okay, I would love to, <laughs> when they decide what um, lessons are going to be taught, I'd love to have a lot more that involves women and women's leadership and women's voices. I love that. I love that. All right, Rick, what about for you? If you could pick one or make one up, what would you pick? So I actually like, in terms of existing callings, I love what I'm currently doing. It's, it's been my favorite calling. I've had this calling on and off over probably 40 years. And I really enjoy that particular calling of teaching adults in Sunday school. In addition to that, I have always wanted to and have always, uh, since I became an adult historian, I have written about the history of the church, trying to latch on to subjects at a depth which uh, no one's ever gone to before. And I'm going to continue to do that. I'm not, I'm not done with vengeance is mine. I will continue to write about church history. Oh, I like that tease. That, that reminds yeah. me of a question I didn't ask either of you, but I'm going to now before I ask the final one. Uh, what's next? I know you're working with signature Barbara Jones Brown and Rick, you're retired, which means again, feverishly working all of the time. Barbara, what's next for you? Okay. So that's funny. You should ask. Cause I am currently working on my next book. Okay. And right now I'm not sitting in my own office. I am in Philadelphia working on my next book. I am sitting in Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's office. Okay. And I am writing her biography. A quick byline for people who don't know who that is. So uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich is an LDS uh, Pulitzer Prize winning historian. She coined the, she's best known for coining the phrase, well-behaved women seldom make history. And she has a remarkable story and I'm I'm learning so much more about that story, and I cannot wait to um, write in a book. So I'm spending the week here with her working on that biography. Any idea when? A, an, a happy, uplifting, inspiring topic after working on Mountain Meadows for 18 years. So. 
Uh, any idea when we'll see that? No. I'm not going to make any predictions. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned not to do that. Yeah, fair. That's a fair thing. All right, Rick, what's next for you? You're, you said writing's not done. What's the next thing you're you're putting your work to? Well, being retired, I have the luxury of avoiding writing contracts. Writing contracts commit you to a schedule and push you really hard and put a lot of pressure on you. In my retirement, I want to be more thoughtful in the things that I'm writing without the pressure of contracts. So I'm working on two things right now. The Joseph Smith papers are wrapping up. It's a project I helped to launch in 2001. And so it's an ideal time to spend more time thinking about Joseph Smith. So I'm spending a lot of time reading and thinking about and writing about Joseph Smith. And then everybody needs a kind of hobby project. Sometimes when your, your brain is full and you need to just sort of relax or to use a, a Joseph Smith phrase, when you need to unstring the bow <laughs> so that it retains its, uh, its strength. I work on John Wesley Powell, the river explorer who went down the Green and Colorado Rivers in 1869, 71 and 72. And I have a long-term project someday to write three volumes, one on each of Powell's uh, river trips. And so for that reason, every year during the summertime, I take a river trip. Last year, I floated the entire Grand Canyon from Lee's Ferry to Pierce Ferry on a raft. Wow. Wow. And we should say we should say that Rick's research on John Wesley Powell is woven throughout Benjamin's mind because uh, Powell was being guided years later by um, perpetrators of the massacre through Southern Utah. And so his, that story is woven throughout our book as well. We should also say that Rick just wanted to run a river every summer. And so he had to justify it to his wife and be like, listen, it's for it's exactly. for work. I have to. I don't I I don't want to. I know it's going to be several weeks. I I would like, you know, to be here with you, but I have to go do this river thing. Sorry. I'll see you in the month of July. Uh, it's pure labor, Richie. Yeah. Absolutely. Pure labor. And Barbara, Barbara and her husband, Matt, have joined me. Yeah, we went on one of those trips. It was fun. Yeah. You're sending her pictures being like, oh, it's the worst. <laughs> the water is so peaceful. And we woke up to the sun today. Blah. Oh, I hate it. It's terrible. In all seriousness, and this guided Barbara and me in writing Vengeance is Mine, my rule of writing is I don't write about a place unless I've seen it. Because yeah. I've learned over the years that your imagination can take you far astray. So when when we discovered, for example, that John D. Lee drove four dozen head of cattle from the old Perea settlement that's east of Kanab down to Lee's Ferry in the, uh, the 1870s, Barbara and I and her husband Matt and some of our friends, we hiked the four days through the slot canyons. Backpacked it. Yeah. From White House all the way down to Lee's Ferry in what was sometimes freezing cold water in order to see it so we could write about it. Oh, yeah. That's it. yeah. And actually, pretty much almost every site that you'll read about in, in Vengeance is my we went there. Uh, we went there to see where it happened so we could that, write accurately about it. That's yeah. so sad for you, too. I bet that it was, was so miserable. Hard. Boy, what an ugly so part of the state of Utah. The worst oh. was when we the worst was when we had to go to Lake Powell. Oh, oh. you guys are so brave. 
You are so brave. Thank you for your bravery. <laughs> the last question we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, we ask you to interpret it however you may. Rick, we've asked you this before, but I'm betting your answer may change. Who knows? We have that when we have multiple uh, visits from a particular guest. But the question is, what is your favorite part of your faith? Is Barbara starting again or am I starting? Mm -hmm. You go, Rick. He asked okay, you Rick, you go. <laughs> the favorite part of my faith, honestly, is the first two great commandments to love God and love neighbor and associated with that, the, the three great virtues or principles of faith, hope, and charity. When all What I say to people when they have concerns about what might be going on in their own lives or in the church, I say to them, retreat to those principles. Retreat to those basic principles. So, for example, if you have harsh feelings towards somebody or some group of people, retreat to charity, the greatest of all. Yeah. All right. All right, Barbara. Gosh, there's a lot. But I think uh, one of the things that is so important to me that I love is the church's uh, our faith emphasis on family. And uh, my family relationships are strong, not only in my immediate family, but also in my extended family. Um, and for me, that that sense of being tied to my family also extends to ancestors and learning about them. And so knowing who I am because of, of who my ancestors were. Um, in fact, I, I discovered I was Laurel's third cousin, <laughs> uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's third cousin because of knowing about our family. And so a lot of times we will talk about our common ancestors, the Thatchers. And um, so having those ties, those family ties and the importance of family history work and and uh, uh, generations connected um, is so important to me. Beautifully said. The name of the book is Vengeance is Mine. Rick Turley and Barbara Jones-Brown, uh, thank you so much for being here. You can find a link for this book to purchase it in the show notes. So go ahead and click there. And also you can read a little bit more about uh, Rick and Barbara. Uh, the win for me is that I didn't call you Babs. For some reason... No, that's my nickname. It would have been okay? My yeah. My... I didn't want to, I didn't want to yeah, be too impersonal. I was... So I was named after my grandmother, Barbara. Her name uh -huh. was, Babs. she went by Babs. And then all through college and high school, I was Babs. And so I kind of actually love it when people call me Babs. No problem. Well, then Babs and Rick, it's been great. I look forward to your <laughs> fifth Sunday lesson. Can't wait. I'll talk to the uh, folks down there in uh, downtown Salt Lake. We'll get it happening. Just make sure, sure you, you get it. ready. It's coming. It's coming. And we all need <laughs> to learn about this. Uh, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week. And then when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Culture Hall show.